My ideation and my attempts were getting progressively closer uh, to the to the edge, both metaphorically and literally. One evening, I found myself on the the edge of a bridge, you know, thirty or forty feet above the ground. Welcome to the Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I want to welcome Mark Hennick to the show. Mark is... Let's just say a mental health advocate, because if I spew off all of his titles, there's a lot behind this guy. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you again. Met you, what was it, last uh, April, I think? At the, Dallas. Yeah. In Dallas, absolutely, yeah. I still remember another advocate, Lee Thomas, who introduced me to you, and Lee said, you know, Mark's kind of a celebrity, <laughs> Lee is very kind. I, I paid <laughs> paid them to say that. <laughs> I, you know, I think Lee is uh, is right on the spot there. Uh, you have been in the mental health field for so long. Uh, you do such amazing work. You also have your own story uh, of depression and mental illness, which starts at a pretty early age, doesn't it? It does, and I mean that's really why I do this work. I, I think I was probably. Um, experiencing symptoms anyway of depression as young as 10 years old. Uh, I was first suicidal by the time I was 12. And I only found that out really by going into hospital uh, with suicidal ideation and, and drawing little pictures on the side of a test that I didn't feel prepared for because I couldn't focus. I, I didn't realize that my grades had already been slipping for at least a year, probably two years prior to that. Uh, but nobody recognized the signs that I was struggling. So by the time I went into hospital for uh, saying that I wanted to kill myself, that was the first time anybody had ever thought that I might be having a hard time. And that was at age 12? That was at 12, yeah. So who did you first express those thoughts to? Was it somebody in school? Was it family? So I, I arrived, uh, you know, when I, growing up, uh, as is common, I think, uh, from people I've talked to anyway, with people who've struggled, uh, there was a lot of discord in our house growing up. I, I was raised in a, or for half of my, more than half of my childhood anyway, in a split a home in a blended family. Uh, and it was, it was difficult. There was a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting, um, a sense of hyper-masculinity from my stepfather that I absorbed a lot. I was a sensitive uh, kid in particular. Um, so I remember, uh, I was late for school a lot because there were a lot of fights in the morning right before we had to go to school, uh, right before the bus would come or, or, you know, a variety of other reasons. So I got to school, uh, late that morning in particular, as I had so many others before there was a social studies test. And when I got to the room, there was only 10 minutes left of, of the test and the teacher handed it to me. She didn't care why I was late. She, I was you know, I, I, it had happened a few times already, so I was developing a bit of a reputation, I think, by that point as maybe a slacker, as a lazy kid, a kid who didn't care. 
despite the fact that my academics and my my intelligence and having people like me were these were among the most important things I think to me at the time. Uh, but she just gave me the test and she you know gave me a little good luck wink uh, wink wink nudge nudge and I sat down at my desk and I looked at the test and I realized I was completely blank. There was nothing in my mind. I, I knew that I probably knew the answers somewhere, but there was nothing coming into my head. And I think, you know, in retrospect, that was probably one of my earliest memories of dissociating uh, from the trauma that I had experienced uh, repeatedly prior to that. Although I'm sure it had happened, you know, it had become a, a coping mechanism for me. Right. So when I couldn't think of any answers, um, all that would come out were these little doodles on the side of my test. And I drew 10 different ways that I could kill myself uh, and, and, you know, as creatively as I could. And I, I wasn't a very good artist, but I drew little stick figures of all the different ways, 10 different ways that I could die. When I handed the test in, it, it was a split period. So um, I think the teacher saw it uh, when I had handed it in. And when we came back to class uh, for the next period, she called me out into the hall. Um, she asked me about what they were. I explained very matter of factly what these little doodles were. It, it didn't seem like... You know, I'm sure it, it, it didn't seem normal to me necessarily, but it, it didn't seem like that big of a deal because I was so used to having these thoughts rattling around in my head. Um, so she referred me down to the guidance counselor. And, and that's when, after some conversation, he basically said to me, look, Mark, I think you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, this this isn't normally how people deal with failing a test. Uh, and that's when I found out that I that I was suicidal. Wow. So I know that's ages ago for you, but. Do you remember what that felt like when when you hear a counselor tell you, like, I think you need to go to the hospital? I thought he was the crazy one. <laughs> I, 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 thought, I, was, I thought it was the strangest thing in the world. I thought, I'm not sick. There's, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, why would I need to go to the hospital? The hospital is somewhere where people go uh, when they're hurt or when they're sick. And I just feel really sad and I want to kill myself, but I'm not sick. Right. <laughs> because we never, you know, my mother was a, was a nurse. She was a healthcare provider for, for more than 30 years, you know, for all, for my entire childhood. That's all I remember is her coming home smelling like latex and disinfectant. <laughs> Anybody who has, you know, nurses or, or doctors in their family probably knows of a doctor. But, you know, we never had those kinds of conversations at home. It right. wasn't necessarily taboo. I mean, it was later with my stepfather, but not with my mother. It's just, it wasn't, it wasn't what we talked about. So, so we just never did. And do you remember that first hospitalization and what you got out of that and how your family responded? Oh, you never forget your first time. Um, <laughs> you, I remember being wheeled down to the psych ward uh, on the stretcher, of course. Um, it was late at night, I believe. And, and it was a fairly small psych ward. I grew up in a small town, uh, a mining uh, manufacturing town. Uh, which by the time I was growing up, all the mines and manufacturing had closed. So it was largely an unemployed town. Um, but I, I remember being wheeled down there and, and it was probably about, uh, 12, 16 beds maybe and all in shared rooms. And I was sharing a room with an elderly man. Um, I was the youngest on the ward by at least 30 or 40 years. We didn't have child and youth mental health services. Actually, they still don't, uh, in my hometown. So it was just everybody of every age. We're all put in the same unit. And I remember that first night I was trying to sleep in my room, in my bed under the window, and he was in the bed by the door. And he sat 
upright in his bed at probably 2 30 3 o'clock in the morning and he just started screaming we will overcome we will overcome this is what he's screaming and i'm oh awake my goodness ter- terrified i had no idea what this was nobody had told me what this was supposed to be like I, wow. I thought I was coming here to get better. This was the hospital, and now I'm terrified of this man who I'd never met before is screaming in my room, and, and I didn't know why. And he, he just went back to sleep after that, and I was awake for the rest of the night, and nobody, nobody told me, hey, it's going to be okay. Um, wow, that must have been just terrifying as a 12-year-old to see a man do that next to you. It, and, and especially, too, as a person who had all the same stigmas about mental health as everybody else that did, I think, in my hometown and, or, or anywhere else for that matter. You know, it's, this wasn't that long ago, I guess. I'm not that old, but it, it was long enough ago. Um, 20, well, I guess it was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, it, it's um, it, it, that that memory has never left my mind. And I think it was uh, an important moment for me because it in some ways reinforced a lot of stigma about what some people with severe and persistent mental illnesses, how they behave. You know, I'm, I'm sure he, he probably had psychosis or, um, or had terrible nightmares or any variety of other things. Uh, but no, again, nobody explained that to me at the time. Nobody explained to me that, no, he'll, he's going through a hard time too, just like you. Wow. That must've, yeah, that just must've been such a, traumatic experience for you do you so what happened like the next day were you able to process through that with a nurse or anybody at the time no nobody uh, nobody sat me down and talked to me about you know hey you know that thing that happened last night here's what it was he was probably experiencing no we didn't have conversations like that i think the next morning uh we had the you know 20 minute meeting appointment with the psychiatrist um, just to check on meds, uh, had some meds adjusted and then back to the room. It, it wasn't a very active treatment environment. And, you know, it's actually still not in hospitals. I've worked since then as a, as a clinician, uh, as, a, as an advocate uh, for people in hospital. And the treatment environment is still generally not all that much different. You go in and you wait uh, and you meet with a psychiatrist once or twice a day, maybe if you're lucky, for a few minutes. Uh, and, and then you're released when you promise not to kill yourself basically. And, and that's what it was for me too. It wasn't a, I, I will credit the experience with keeping me safe. It kept me alive, uh, when I didn't want to be, uh, but that's not, it didn't do anything. I don't think for my recovery. Right. So that's what it, what it sounds like the intent is more of kind of suicidal watch, make sure you're safe, adjust the meds and get you the heck out of there. Exactly. Rather than kind of a therapeutic, let's learn about this. Let's do some group therapy or other learning pieces that help you work towards your recovery. Correct. And, and as a result, I mean, when I was released, I, I was kept for a few days and nobody saw it coming. Of course, I remember uh, I, I pulled all, all of my medical records from this time in my life uh, for a book that I've written, uh, which will be out um, hopefully early next year. Uh, and as I looked through the medical records, I saw my mother's uh, comments in the family interview section of that first, very first admission note in the year. It was in April of 2000, uh, and it said, uh, "We didn't, I, I, we didn't see this coming." She said, "She said Mark is a good boy." In the notes, her she's quoted as saying, "Mark is a good boy," as though being a good boy and having a hard time are two mutually exclusive things. Yeah, right. right? Or or but, or having a mental illness means you're a bad kid. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that's that's how I felt. And, and nobody really told me otherwise. We were raised Catholic. So there was a lot of <laughs> talk about sin, I guess, or at least an understanding of it. And nobody really told me that that um, this was a that this was something that I could work through, that I could learn skills. And 
So as a result, you know, when I was eventually discharged, I was in and out of hospital another seven times, I think, uh, for, for increasingly um, um, self-harming behaviors, increasingly more dangerous suicidal uh, attempts over the next several years. I, I, was, I became uh, what's known uh, in a derogative sense in the healthcare system as a frequent flyer. Right. And this was, I think you said seven times within how many years would you say? Uh, from 12 till 17, probably. Wow. And you had, uh, some suicidal attempts in between there. Yeah. Yeah. So each time, I mean, there was a lot of struggle or I, I should say, actually, I think it was 12 to, to 15 or 16, but, uh, anyway, regardless, um, each of those seven hospitalizations were as a direct result of a suicide attempt, or at least one that I got caught for, uh, there was lots of other suffering and, and stuff that didn't get noticed in between that, of course. Uh, but those seven hospitalizations were either for um, a, uh, an explicit suicide attempt or very serious suicidal ideation. And all of them were similar in the way you were held and treated in the hospital. Essentially, let's make sure he's safe. Let's try to uh, stabilize him with the medications and out the door again. Generally speaking, I mean, I did um, encounter a, an on-unit uh, social worker who uh, I later realized was very helpful. I don't think I realized it at the time, uh, but she planted for me, her name was Linda, a couple of really crucial uh, seeds in terms of my choices uh, in my behavior, even if I do feel like I'm a slave to my mind, uh, even if I do feel, or even if I don't have the capacity that I wish that I had, uh, that there were some things in my control, that I wasn't completely powerless, that I wasn't completely broken. I didn't believe her at the time, of course, but now in retrospect, uh, those were some really important lessons for me. And, and there were a number of those along the way. So I wouldn't say that there was ever any one re revelatory uh, person or experience or certainly not medication or therapy, uh, but little bits and pieces that I accumulated along the way eventually took root, I think. Right. And in the meantime, you were never seeing a therapist or doing any kind of talk therapy or anything in between these hospitalizations? We did in a, especially early on, in a very rudimentary sense, I feel like. After that first hospitalization, I was referred uh, to child and youth, uh, outpatient child and youth mental health services. They didn't have an inpatient unit and still don't, uh, but they did have some outpatient services. And again, it was a social worker, uh, and many social workers are often um, psychotherapists as well if they're clinical social workers. Um, and she started to expose me for the very first time to cognitive behavioral therapy uh, in a very basic sense, just recognizing the connection between my thoughts, my feelings and my actions, um, some very basic self-care, some basic self-affirmations that I could use. Uh, and the thing was, it, it actually did help. Um, after that first hospitalization, I think I was relatively stable for, for you know, I say quite a while, but it was probably several months. Um, until eventually, as happens really quite often in the, in the healthcare sector, especially the mental health sector, um, I think compassion fatigue set in. I mean, certainly my therapist never told me this, but, but it's just having worked in the field myself, this is what I suspect, my therapist moved on to a new job. Uh, because I was doing better, uh, she asked, called and asked my mother if I needed to be re-referred to a new therapist and said, and uh, and my mother said no that you know Mark is Mark is doing pretty well I, I don't think he needs therapy anymore uh, and when the therapy went away uh, you know the thing that helped me to get to where I was in the first place when that was taken away uh, like the training wheels being taken off I I decompensated or I, I got worse uh, quite quite quickly after that 
So, you know, I, I think that when I got help, it helped. When I didn't get help or when that help was withdrawn, uh, I got worse. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. Sure, uh, it does. But you know what? Nobody caught that at the time. Right. Nobody seemed to see that trend at the time. Right. And and your mom was in the nursing field, and I'm sure she was doing what she felt was best for you. She was. But, you know, while she was a, an excellent nurse, um, and I think all of her, her uh, co-workers would say so, you know, she was when she was at home, she wasn't a nurse. When she was at home, she was my mother. Right. Uh, when she was at home or when she was sitting in the emergency room with me, uh, she wasn't in the emergency room as a nurse. She was there as a mother with a suicidal kid. Uh, and that has a funny way of changing your, you know, professional outlook. Uh, you can't quite do the same kind of work. Absolutely. Can you describe what some of those days were like in between your hospitalizations? I mean, I'm imagining that maybe there was a buildup as your depression got worse mm -hmm. and worse and then you finally became suicidal or what other kind of symptoms were you dealing with? Yeah. So for me, it was always, um, again, now in retrospect, and the only reason it's clear for me now is because I actually took the time with the writing of the book to go through the medical records to really go deep into my mind to, to put myself back there. Uh, you know, almost on a, well, actually literally on a day by day basis to analyze what I was going through at the time. And it's only now that I was, because of doing that, that I'm able to see uh, the trends. But basically, I would reach a breaking point. Uh, suicide or suicidal ideation became, I think, my coping mechanism. Uh, in some ways, I almost became addicted to suicide and suicidal ideation because I didn't know how else to cope. You, you know, you, people are born, little kids, little babies are born with all kinds of feelings, of course. Anybody who's ever been around a baby knows that they know how to feel things very openly. Uh, but no, you're not actually born knowing what to do with those feelings or how to manage them or, or how to regulate them in any way. That's something that you learn later with often a, a lot of help from people around you. Uh, and I don't think I got as much of that help as other people did. We didn't do it in school, sure, but even at home and, and elsewhere, uh, we just... Everybody, you know, especially growing up in a small town where everybody's struggling, there's a bit of a mentality of you think your life is hard. You know, everybody's got it hard. What makes what makes you so special, basically? Right, right. Um, and then as a as a little boy or as my stepfather would call me a man, <laughs> that it <laughs> right. wasn't OK. It wasn't OK for me to express my feelings. And if you can't express your feelings, how the hell are you supposed to learn how to deal with them? Yeah. So, you know, I think I had all of these compounding factors um, that that uh, um, made it not okay for me to learn how to deal with my feelings. So, you know, I'd get hospitalized. I'd feel okay when, when I got the connection that I needed, when I, when I was able to, to let off all the steam or whatever it was inside me, uh, I'd get discharged. I'd do okay for a little while to varying degrees, depending on the, on the outpatient support that I got. Uh, and then almost always as stressors would come up or as the effects of the, the intervention would wear off, I would almost always decline again. Uh, get myself stuck into the same place again, go resort to suicide as my escape, I think, and then and then end up in hospital again. So that cycle kept repeating itself over and over. So I'm still going to push you a little bit. If like, are you able to put your finger on any other symptoms prior to becoming suicidal? I mean, were you did you quit oh, eating? Sure. Did you yeah yeah? Or were you oversleeping, yeah. skipping class? Well, so yes, all of the above. Um, well, actually, on the skipping class front, that didn't happen until I, I remember the very first day that I skipped class. And it was September 11th, 2001. Uh, I stayed home that morning. My mother had gone off. She, she used to leave at five o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning to go to, to her nursing shift. 
my stepfather was often out working, doing real man's work, as he'd call it, in the yard. Uh, and I didn't go to school. Uh, I stayed home on the couch in my pajamas. And I remember turning on the television. I, I had hardly slept the night before anyway. Turning on the television and watching the second plane fly into the, into the World Trade Center on CNN. And that was the first time I had ever skipped school. So I felt like it was this analogy for me of this attack of these buildings collapsing. And I, I watched it for hours and hours and hours nonstop because it was like how I, it was like everything that I felt inside but had never been able to talk about before that I didn't have the language for was suddenly being manifested in the world. There's this massive catastrophe happening in the world and in a much smaller sense that nobody would ever understand. That's what I felt like inside, like this, this terrible tragedy was happening inside me too. Of course, it's all relative when, when you're a 12-year-old a kid, right? Well, ac uh, and, and actually, I think, you know, you made it sound like on a much smaller scale, but as a 12-year-old kid, it probably felt just as catastrophic as that happening in the, the U.S. Inside me, yes, it did. Right. And now, of course, I didn't have anybody telling me, you know, that there's ways to work through this and, and all kinds of things. But um, so, you know, I, I um, started skipping school more than doing, you know, not doing my homework, Um not showing up to classes, uh, getting disciplined more. Uh, again, I think for connection-seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly not sleeping or eating. I had lost, uh, at one point I was down to, I think, 90 pounds. I was a skinny little um, runt of a kid at, at, at one point. Uh, certainly the medications were giving me, because I was on a, a rotating cocktail of medications, especially by the end, uh, and the side effects of those really were, were very difficult for me, uh, especially in terms of what they did to my blood pressure. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a teenager with dangerously high blood pressure, and then nobody believed that either. My doctors didn't believe that I could have high blood pressure. You know, you're a 14-year-old kid at the time. You can't have heart disease. Right, but I'm on this cocktail of medications that, <laughs> right. I'm, only that I'm only half compliant on to begin with. Yeah, that's going to screw with my blood pressure and, and, my, and my cardiac rhythm. Um, but again, nobody, um, doctors don't talk to each other so much. So they, I don't think they were really all that coordinated in the various treatments that I was receiving. Right. What kind of cocktail, and I'm not looking for specifics, but in mm -hmm. my mind, it seems like, okay, put the kid on an antidepressant and you make it sound like there were quite a few medications and, there were. and wondering were they all for depression, anxiety, or were some of those for sleep or how did it become a cocktail and a rotating yeah. cocktail of medications? Yeah. So it started with one antidepressant. Um, and it, nobody told me again at the time that, um, virtually all antidepressants carry a black box warning, uh, that warn against prescribing to kids. Uh, and if you do prescribe to kids, uh, it's supposed to be very closely monitored uh, for increases in suicidal behavior, which is exactly what happened to me, suicidal ideation and behaviors. Um, so that first medication actually made me more suicidal. I felt less depressed, but I felt more suicidal. So it right. kind of canceled each other out. Um, and, uh, and that wound me up back in hospital. Uh, anxiety. So I was, I was diagnosed, um, first with, uh, major depressive disorder and with a query for, for a social anxiety disorder, which later ended up being validated. Uh, so I was prescribed a, a benzodiazepine for, for my anxiety, which is like a, a Valium type of medication. Yeah. Ativan was what I was put on, but, okay. uh, which is pretty much this everybody's put on out of end, regardless of age or condition, it seems. Um, I was put on a hypnotic to help me sleep. 
Um, I was put on an antipsychotic at one point, uh, off label, uh, partially for sleep. I was put on an anticonvulsant, uh, again, because some of the, the effects of that could help with my, uh, depression and sleep issues and anxiety issues as well. Uh, several different antidepressants along the way. Um, you know, many of them overlapping with each other, uh, so that it was, it was very difficult to feel normal. Uh, when virtually all of my senses were being impacted by some medical intervention or another. Right. And wondering how they impacted one another. And I I would imagine your detailed knowledge of of what you were on also goes to the fact that you've researched your past records, because that's Uh, pretty incredible to to remember all that as when you were so young. Yeah, you know, and and that's definitely it. I mean, I remember certainly the um, impacts that they had on me, and I always, you know, I never forgot any of the names of any of the drugs or anything like that. I was always keenly interested, I think, in in that kind of thing, because my interest was primarily, how do I get better? What can I do to get better? And it seemed like I was the only one who was particularly interested in that. You know, my doctors, from my perspective anyway, were more interested in a set it and forget a set it and forget a McMedicine kind of approach that here, take these pills and then don't come back for six months unless you need a refill. Uh, and that wasn't for me. I wanted an active treatment. Okay, here's a problem. Let's fix it. What are the steps we need to do? It was very kind of type A approach to that. But that's not the way that I never encountered that in the system in terms of, of people trying to help me. Um, so I was always aware of the, the medications that I was on, but it was only much later that I saw the progression of them, the potential uh, side effects that were there are the things that were happening in my life that could have been side effects of the medications for example in uh late junior high school early high school i started having seizures uh of which you know and and doctor the neurologist couldn't figure out why i was having them that there were a mix apparently of genuine seizures and pseudo seizures which are um or, or psychosomatic seizures essentially um and uh after a battery of tests figured out that that there was no cause for them uh, but then when I was switched off one medication to a different one, magically the seizure stopped. So so when I when I look back and I see that in the records now, I wish I had have been more empowered at the time or had somebody else, an advocate who was more empowered, who could have looked at my records uh, at a macro level, saw these trends uh, and been able to point this out and say, hey, do you think that maybe this medication that is known for lowering the seizure threshold might have something to do with what's going on with this kid? But we didn't have people to ask those kinds of questions at that time. Right. Wow. How do you explain eventually getting out of this cycle of suicidal ideation, hospitalization, depression? So for me and, and you know, feeling um, again, it, it all sounds so clear and, and organized now. Uh, I'll say it didn't at the time. I didn't see any of this, these connections or, or anything at the time. I just felt lost in this hurricane. Um, and by the end, uh, I now realize that my attempts, my ideation and my attempts were getting progressively closer, uh, to the, to the edge, both metaphorically and literally, right. uh, and, until late one evening, I found myself on the, the edge of a bridge, you know, 30 or 40 feet above the ground, uh, which I now know was probably, would probably only be about a 50, 50 chance of actually dying. Uh, uh, there's a 50, 50 chance that I would have been maimed horribly as well, but I didn't know that at the time. But I, I went there. I, it was a bridge that was that used to 
connect two areas of town, my neighborhood, with the rest of the city. Uh, and it stretched over the old steel plant, uh, steel manufacturing plant. They used to make railroad ties and you know during the war there or something. And uh, I went to that place because... I felt like I couldn't connect with any one person in my life, that I didn't feel like any per- anybody got me uh, in the way that I felt inside. Uh, but I felt like this place got me because it used to be a, a, a source of vitality. It used to be alive. It used to provide a livelihood and purpose and meaning for generations of people. My entire, you know, I've got 30 two plus aunts and uncles, and they all were a result of working at a family that worked at that steel plant. But then here it was shut down and abandoned and falling down and derelict. And, and that's how I felt inside. So, uh, so I think I connected to that place. And, you know, a lot of suicide hotspots are like that. They have a significance to the person who is going there. So I went there with the full intention in the middle of the night of killing myself uh, alone because I didn't want anybody to stop me this time. Uh, and then lucky me, and I, I don't mean that, you know, uh, in earnest, or I mean that earnestly rather, uh, somebody did stop, even though you're not supposed to stop on the bridge. Somebody did stop, and he talked to me, and uh, and eventually he actually did reach out and save my life. And it was at that moment, I, n- I now realize, uh, that something inside me changed, uh, that encounter with that stranger on the bridge that night. That was a man who was just driving by in a car? Yeah, he was just driving by. Again, it was I think it was 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. He was driving by. Lots of people drove by. I still remember hearing them drive by behind me. You know, I was on the wrong side. I climbed up over the railing and I held the light post on my, that was, I was next to a light post and I held it as I climbed back down to stand on about an inch and a half or so of concrete on the other side. Uh, and I held the light post because I didn't want to slip and fall by accident. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted this to be my choice. I felt like I had no other choice in my life, but this should be my choice. So and I stood there for a while. I don't even know how long time kind of does funny things in your head when you're in this kind of place. And then I heard his voice over my shoulder, a man's voice. I couldn't see him because of the way that I was balanced on the edge. I couldn't turn around because I would have fallen. But I heard his voice and he came up behind me. and He said, you don't look like you're doing so good there. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not. Um, and, you know, he didn't suddenly just rush up and uh, grab me. He didn't he didn't give me any of the hollow, empty platitudes, you know, tomorrow's another day. Well, if you're super depressed, that's actually part of the problem. Tomorrow's another day. Right, (laughs) right, exactly. The same old stuff again, right? He didn't ask me about my medications or my, uh, my, my doctors or my diagnosis. None of that mattered. He just stood there a good distance away. Uh, and asked me about what I was interested in, who my friends were and my family, and if I had any pets and hobbies and what I liked to do. You know, he just asked me about my life. And, you know, he clearly wasn't a, a mental health professional, and I knew what they sounded like. I talked to, by that point to so many psychiatrists and nurses and doctors and, and a psychologists or two and social workers. I talked to everybody, and he didn't sound like that. He just sounded like a guy who genuinely wanted to get to know me and as he talked to me, I felt myself loosen up out of this constricted, collapsed place that I was in in my mind where I felt like I had to do anything to break out. Otherwise, I would suffocate. And even if it meant I had to end my life, that's how I could break out of this suffocating darkness that, that had enveloped me. Um, but I felt that start to loosen uh, as he as he related to me and, and connected to me. And eventually it loosened enough that I saw that the, the police had arrived. And I, I still don't to this day, even after doing this deep work into my own memory, I still don't remember hearing them arrive. Uh, but there were, you know, 
probably two or three cop cars on either side of me blocking off the bridge with yellow sawhorse barricades and uh, crowds had gathered, even though it was you know almost midnight uh, on a Sunday night in March. Crowds had gathered because it turns out, I think, and I always remember this from my childhood as well, one of the pastimes in a small town is listening to the police scanner uh, to see if there's right. any, any action happening. Because chances are you probably knew the person anyway, and, and that was it too. You know, people would talk about people over their coffee the next morning. Um, so their crowds had gathered, and I remember hearing the voices of some young men who were standing on one of the barricades off over my shoulder, and I remember hearing them laughing. And one of them uh, shouted out to me. He said that I should jump. He said, jump, you coward. Wow. Yeah. And when when I heard him say that, it was like I was on this. I was literally balanced on this edge anyway. But in my mind, I was I was ambivalent. I was balanced in between living and dying. And even though I had this stranger and all I could see was that he was wearing a light brown jacket. That's all I could. That's all I had remembered about him for years, even though he was connecting with me, tipping the balance back toward life. When that guy on the sidelines shouted out to me to jump, it was just a reminder to me of like that whole life that I didn't want to live. So when he said that, I let go of the railing and I started to fall. And and it was like time just froze in front of me. Um, it was like I had just completely given up, like I had died before I even hit the ground. And that's when I saw the stranger's light brown jacket, his arm reach around my chest, and I felt a hand grab my back and... Uh, he thrust me backward. My feet came up off of the edge and just dangled over the side of the bridge for a minute. Uh, and then he pulled me backward over the railing. I was loaded into an ambulance and brought back to hospital. And uh, and that was actually my last hospitalization. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's interesting because the guy talked to you, right? And just talked to you about life in general, it sounds like. No, you, yeah, nothing huge. Nothing so huge. do you think they're in retrospect and, and what an amazingly awful thing for somebody else to shout like he's the guy you should seek out. Like, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, somebody else somebody else has suggested that to me at one point. Oh I, my I, goodness. Like yeah. that dude, uh, that's amazing to hear. But do you think in retrospect, so him talking about your life, I know you talked about how it made you feel more comfortable and loosen up. In the end, it didn't get you, and I know there was this other jerk chiming in, but it didn't actually get you to come back on the safe side. Do you think that there was something that he could have said that might have gotten you to climb back on the the side? Like, what what would have been even better than what he did, which sounds phenomenal, and he clearly, obviously saved your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and, and I've never, especially as I started, as I've been reflecting on him for so many years and, and talking about him for so many years, um, I've never credited him with anything other than saving my life, the, the, you know, anything less rather than saving my life. And I think that if he had more time, if it had been just him doing what he was doing, that seemingly insignificant connection building, uh, I think I would have come back over, to be perfectly honest. I mean, that was that was nowhere near my mind at the time. Um, but I think that's something that people need to remember is that these kinds of conversations take time and patience, and there isn't going to be a magic bullet, a magic word, uh, that's going to, a spell that's going to bring that person back to you, that you can't skip the important work of building connection. That's the most important part. And if you, as soon as you try to short circuit that, that's what destroys the trust. And I think that would have been the case 
for him too. If he had tried to say some deeply insightful, you know, uh, clinical advice or even life advice, I wouldn't have believed him anyway. So it wouldn't have broken through. Instead, I'm pretty sure we just talked about my cat. Like we talked about stuff that doesn't seem to matter. And yeah, maybe it didn't matter for him. Maybe it wouldn't matter for anybody else listening to this, but it mattered to me. And in that, that tight little place in my mind, that's all that counted. Yeah, that's awesome. That is a, that's a really interesting tact. Cause I just think of myself, I've had that thought, like, what, what do I do if there is somebody on a bridge when I'm crossing it? And I think my intuition would be to get out and to say to them, like, you know, there are so many people who love you when really, I don't know that. And really they may believe that nobody loves them. And, and then I get into a battle possibly. I don't yep. know. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's exactly where I was in my head. I mean, um, it would have absolutely killed my mother uh, if I had have died that night. Um, but I didn't believe that at the time. You know, so it's one of those old stigmas that people think that people are selfish uh, for wanting to kill themselves. You know, how could you possibly do that to your mother? I thought I'd be doing her a favor. That's where I was in my twisted, you know, um, uh, uh, collapsed place in my mind. I thought I'd be sparing her the trouble of me, of needing to live a life with a crazy problematic kid who all of the television shows said was going to be an axe murderer or a rapist or a, you know, who, who I've watched law and order. I re I've read the newspapers, you know, that's the stigma that's out there. More than 90% of stories are about violence and mental illness. And, and I internalized a lot of that. So I thought I'd be doing the people who loved me a favor. Well, and, and I want to reiterate that that's not just a young person who feels that way. A lot of people I've spoken to and me included, when I was suicidal, I certainly believed I was a burden to my family. I was a burden to others. I was no, I was an awful husband, an awful father, and everybody would be so much better without me. And, yeah. and it really frustrates me a lot when people do talk about somebody being selfish and, yeah. you know, it, it's not about being selfish when you're in this place of incredible pain and the feeling of a burden and, right. and your mind not, not even working properly, I think, in a lot of cases. Your cognition is skewed, your memory, your focus, everything is, is a little whacked out. I, I think so, too. I mean, you're, to varying degrees, your there might not be anything wrong with your capacity or your ability, and certainly not your right to make decisions for yourself. But those decisions are, are inarguably colored by where you are in your mind at that time. I mean, they can't not be. You use your mind for, for whatever mood you're in, you use your mind to make decisions. Uh, and if you're in a good place, you're going to make different decisions than if you're not. So I, I think that, that I wish I had known that at the time, of course, that, that uh, uh, this mantra or what's become a mantra for me in the years since, that this too shall pass, that yes, this sucks. Yes, this is awful. Let it suck. Let it be awful. That's okay. It's allowed to be awful. It's awful for a lot of people, but it will pass. You will get through this. And that, you know, I think that for me has been some of the most validating advice is that nobody is going to bullshit me and tell me that, that, oh, sorry, I'm allowed to swear in your podcast. You just did. And, and I'm <laughs> okay. okay with that. <laughs> I usually ask forgiveness instead of permission. No, <laughs> nice. um, no but I, I didn't want anybody to tell me any kind of, um, bullshit that invalidated my experience that no it does suck and even if it doesn't suck for you it sucks for me and my reality is the only reality that i know i don't know your reality and you can't fully know mine so if it's awful for me then it's awful period yeah uh, 
And I want somebody to validate that. And I want somebody to sit there and let it be awful together. Uh, and then it'll hopefully get better that we'll walk out of the other side of the tunnel together. Right, right. So your story about being on that bridge, you you actually took that a step further. And several years later, I think it was 12 years after you were on that edge of that bridge, mm-hmm. sought out that man who saved you, didn't you? I did. So I remember leaving the hospital that last time. I think they only kept me for three days um, after that hospitalization. Uh, when I was discharged that time, nobody came to get me. I remember leaving the revolving door, literally. Of the How hospital. old were you at the time? Uh, I would have been 15 at the time. Um, I left the, the hospital and I, I think the, the receptionist or the, the person on the desk called me a taxi or something to take home. Uh, because I had literally become that revolving door, you know, oh, frequent flyer patient. Um, in when I looked back at the discharge notes uh, for my later hospitalizations, it basically said, or it did say, uh, "Don't bother closing Mark's file; he'll probably be back." So it it came to the point where the more help I needed, the less help I got. <laughs> right, right. Which is how the system works. Which is how the system fails people all the time. Oh my goodness! So I, you know, I remember leaving the hospital that that day and. You get a lot of time to think when you're on the psych ward. I don't know how much time you've spent on psych wards, but, you know, there's not much else to do, which, <laughs> right. which is kind of counterintuitive, given that the reason you're there in the first place is because of something wrong with your thinking. But you get a lot of time to think anyway. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, luck, maybe, this this one degree of, of navigational change happened in me in which my rumination, my pathological rumination, where I overthink everything, um, targeted this image of these two men on the bridge that night, uh, the one who was on the sidelines um, and who chose essentially to push me over the side of the bridge with with his words saying that I was a coward and t- telling me to jump. And this other stranger, this complete stranger who chose to stand behind me to have my back and literally physically to reach out and to save my life. And as I as I thought about that image, I realized that maybe I had more choice in my life you know, realized it in a very rudimentary way that maybe I had more choice in my life than I had previously thought. Maybe I actually have a choice in who I want to be uh, with this life. Do I want to be like that guy on the sidelines, that complete stranger who kills people? Or do I want to be like the guy, the stranger who has people's backs? And, you know, when I when I decided, you know, at some level anyway, uh, that I wanted to be like the stranger uh, who reached out and had people's backs and saved people and inspired people, um, that's when I think things started to change for me. And, you know, I, I was discharged, uh, on the first day of spring. Uh, and that image for me, uh, I think was maybe coincidental, sure, but powerful for me that it really was a rebirth, uh, for me in many ways. And when I found that purpose, I started speaking openly about my own experiences. It got started getting media attention. People started sharing their experiences with me too. Uh, and then I kept doing that for more than a decade. I went off to college and then grad school and then got a job in the, in the mental health field until eventually I started to feel, uh, or I got, I got asked to do this, um, Ted talk, uh, that ended up becoming super popular in which I shared that story that I just shared with you and one other. And, and uh, super popular, by the way, is an understatement over 6 million views, probably a hell of a lot more than that by now. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it surprised me more than anybody else because I just went up there and, and told stories from my life. And I I had been speaking, you know, for a little while before that, but nothing 
Leon. It was there was a thousand people in the room, and there are thousands more watching live, and then it goes on, and millions more people see it. So then I start getting flooded with messages from all over the world, mostly from from young people, but people of all ages in every country, everywhere. How old uh, were you at the time of that TED talk? I was twenty. Well, how long ago was it? I don't know. Twenty six, twenty eight, okay. something like that. Twenty twenty six, I think. Right. Um, so I. Um, um, getting these messages from all over the place. And, uh, I didn't know how to deal with that. I mean, I still don't know how to deal with it. It still happens all the time, but, um, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it actually made me feel like an imposter. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know what to do for you people because I, I was working as a counselor at the time. Sure. But I can't counsel everybody in the world. All I did was share my story. Like, um, so I can I tell you my story again, if that'll help well, you. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I can't fix you. Nobody fixed me. I just been <laughs> groping around for more than a decade, a dozen years, and I still haven't fully figured it out. Um, and, and even since the dead talk, you know, I still haven't fully figured it out. But, you know, I, I, I the biggest problem for me, I think, for, for a couple of years after the dead talk came out was that I didn't even know if the whole thing was true. Like the, I tell the story about the stranger in the light brown jacket and I was like, I don't even know if I actually made him up. If this was just a dissociation of some, you know, this angel devil narrative over my shoulders, you know, isn't that just all so neat and tidy? So I, I, I figured, you know what, the only way I can close this circle in myself and, and since I'd been working in media, uh, uh, especially after the TED Talk so much, I thought the only way I'm going to resolve this in myself is if I find out the truth. If this guy was really there that night and I didn't have anything to go on, I put in a Freedom of Information Act request for the police records and pulled my medical records and uh, the police fought the request for ages and, and then he wasn't even in them anyway. Uh, and uh, and there was nothing about him in the medical records. All I had to go on was there's a stranger on a bridge late one night who pulled pulled a guy off a bridge, like pulled a kid off a bridge uh, and then disappeared into the night. <laughs> Um, so it was I, a small town though, right? So, I mean, there was, was some hope. There was some hope I thought. So I, um, did what I do and, and I went to, to media. I contacted some producers that I knew. Um, there was a show on in Canada at the time called Canada AM and it was essentially the equivalent of the American Today show. It was their most watched, uh, morning. It was Canada's most watched morning news program at the time, kind of a, a morning institution in Canada. So I, I called up a producer and I said, I want to come on, or I emailed him actually. I said, I want to come on and share this story and want to ask for the public's help in finding this guy because I'm getting nowhere with with police records and, and medical records or any of that. So they said good and, and they invited me on because I had already done the show a couple of times. Um, I told the story that I just told you. They showed some clips from the TED Talk. I went on social media on my Twitter and Facebook accounts at that time. I asked for the public's help and then this story, like by noon, it's blown up it goes viral all over the world it gets picked up by the independent by the new york daily news by the singapore or something or other though it gets a <laughs> sydney morning yeah the sydney morning herald and it's everywhere it's everywhere the daily mail so i start getting messages from from people and then i get one from somebody who says he's his, he knows who i'm talking about that he was his brother-in-law and another from a guy who said he he was his roommate at the time that this stranger came home after all this happened and told him about what happened and his brother-in-law told me uh, that he, uh, that this stranger actually had stumbled across my TED Talk uh, a week earlier. Uh, he said that he saw my TED Talk and he, he realized it was me. And he didn't know prior to that, for the 13, 12, 13 years prior to that, if I had just gone back the next day and finished what I had started. Uh, that was the first time he had seen me ever since. 
So a week before I went on national television to look for this stranger, he had actually already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. Wow. <laughs> so they asked to send me the letter and they did. And I, you know, I, I was terrified all of a sudden that I got this letter from this guy. So I, uh, it just sat in my email inbox. They emailed it to me. It sat in my email inbox for hours until eventually at around midnight, just by coincidence, I think, uh, I flicked on the camera on my iPad cause that's what normal people do at vulnerable <laughs> times in their life. And I record myself reading this letter for the very first time. So if you ever want to see a video on YouTube of a guy really ugly crying, you can look up this, this video of me reading this letter. Um, and in it, he introduces himself and he says, hi, Mark, my name is Mike. And at that moment, he was real. He had a name. You know, the stranger in the light brown jacket who I'd been talking about for more than a decade was suddenly named Mike. And that in that moment validated my entire story. It was like, he said, one of the most powerful things he said to me was how when he approached the railing uh, next to me that night and he looked over, it made him sick to see the world from my perspective. And I, I think that's why I stayed there on that bridge that night. That's why I didn't let go when he approached me. It's because I felt like he, he could see what I could see. Uh, he could see inside me in many ways. And, and I think that's what kept me there. So, you know, I, I, after, after he sends me this email, I, I knew we needed to meet. So we flew him up to, to Toronto where I, where I still live and lived at the time. And, uh, we brought cameras along, of course, <laughs> since we started it in the media, we might as well finish it in the media. Uh, and the cameras captured as, uh, as we reunited in, in downtown Toronto. And the first thing he did when he saw me, uh, you know, I guess for the second time, uh, was to wrap his arms around me again. And, and uh, like he did the last time and, and give me a big hug. And uh, I told Mike when I met him that I'd been thinking about how I could thank him. Uh, I mean, he didn't just save my life. He gave me my whole life. I'd be, uh, he'd been my role model and I didn't even know if he was real. He'd been my role model for my entire life ever since. He was the reason that I was alive, wanting to be like the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life. That's who I wanted to be for others. Um, and I didn't know how to thank him for giving me that whole life. So the best thing I told him I could do was to show him the life that he gave me. I introduced him to my wife and to my then two-year-old little boy. Um, he's now my second little boy's godfather. Um, he's going to meet my little girl soon. I showed him where I work, took him to one of my favorite restaurants, I showed him the city. You know, we chatted. That is amazing. And it was just amazing because none of that stuff would have been possible had he not happened to be in the right place at the right time to connect with a kid who was in trouble, uh, to not shy away, uh, and to not try to lie to me and not yeah. try to bullshit me just to connect with me and to take the time to do that. And that's why I'm still here today. It's because of him. And like you said, you heard plenty of cars driving by, right? I mean, he could, have been, he could have been one of those too. He could have been one of those too. And you know, I don't, I don't for a second think that, or maybe they did, I don't know, but I don't think that anybody was driving by, saw me and chose to keep driving. Like right. maybe they, but more likely that just people aren't aware people yeah. aren't, People's eyes aren't open, even if they're driving. Right, the, right. The, the, I, their, their hearts aren't open to the suffering around them. And I think that if we responsibly open ourselves up and safely open ourselves up uh, as much as we're able to, um, that's the key to connecting with others. It's not building up all these clinical walls around us where we're the expert and everybody else isn't, where we're right and nobody else is, uh, or, or, or any of that other stuff. 
uh, any of these other categories that we use to try to understand the world and make it less scary. Well, the world's scary sometimes, and that's okay. We can be scared together. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what builds real human connection, I think. Absolutely. So I know you described this as being your last hospitalization, but I'm also imagining that when you walked out of that last hospitalization, everything wasn't all rosy and, and perfect right after. No. So how would you describe the point from when you left the hospital and and how you managed to make that your last hospitalization? Yeah, so I mean, it was my last hospitalization for, I should say, qualify that uh, for, for a suicide attempt. Um, I and, and you're right, it wasn't all hallelujah, come to Jesus, everything's better and, and, and I'm recovered. Uh, by the time, you know, 12 years later, 13 years later that I finally met Mike, uh, I was still relapsing once or twice a year. And I still, I don't do it. I don't relapse as often anymore. And actually I haven't in at least a year and a half now, or maybe two years now, but that's how I would figure out recovery. Recovery doesn't happen overnight, at least not for me and not for anybody that I've ever known, but maybe there's some lucky person out there who that's <laughs> happened for. Uh, but recovery is messy. Recovery is weird. There's lots of backslides and lots of, I didn't, I still had depression. I still have depression, but it, it didn't just suddenly all go away. Uh, and I think recovery for me doesn't necessarily mean cure. It doesn't mean either that depression is incurable. It just means that it's a new normal, that you come out of the other side of the tunnel different than you went in. And that's okay. That's called growth. That's post-traumatic growth or whatever you want to call it. That's okay. You can let go of the person that you used to be, the person that you're not anymore, in order to be a new person. And I think as I very gradually am still learning that, um, that was what was key to my recovery. And there was a lot of struggle and suffering along the way. Um, but constantly reminding myself and building up the skills, you know, recovery is, is an exercise. It's a practice that you first do it and can't lift very much weight, but the more you do it, the better you get and the heavier you can take and, and the harder the situations you can get through because you remind yourself, I've been here before. I know what this is and I know I'm going to be okay and it's going to suck for a while. And this is, this is where I got to with it or where I am with it now, basically. Oh, I recognize these symptoms. This means I'm going to be going into a depression for a while. Uh, I know what I need to do in order to help myself through this. And sometimes it's just got to last. It's, it's got to play itself out and that's okay. Um, and here's my safety plan. Here's my wellness plan. Here's all the pieces I need. I know I need to put in place. Uh, when I eventually do realize what's happening to me uh, and then reminding myself constantly uh, that I've been through this before and I'll get through it again. That's what I think recovery is. Right. So can you describe what it's like? I know you said your last relapse was about a year and a half ago or so. What is a relapse for you? Just how deep and dark does it get? And are you still able to function and get through it? And which tools do you go to most to get yourself out of the relapse yeah so you know i say that that um back when i was uh after the bridge attempt was my last uh attempt or, or attempt related um hospitalization i did actually bring myself back into hospital uh, it might have even been over a year and a half ago now um because i was just concerned i was way too concerned with with the the pathway that my thoughts were following and i, and I thought to myself you know i'm I'm good enough at this now that I have to practice what I preach. I'd, I'd been doing mental health advocacy and, and professionally I'd studied it. I'd been talking about it for years. 
I, I know what this is. Uh, I know the limits of my, my skills. I don't like to say abilities because I think um, these skills can be learned um, right. very often. Uh, I know the limits of my skills right now, and I know the limitations that are being put on my skills right now by my, my flaring up depression and anxiety. So I was concerned with my ability to keep myself safe. Uh, so I brought myself back to hospital, fully expecting, you know, hey, it's been 15 years since I've been on a psych ward. Surely to God, it's got to be better now. <laughs> <laughs> Wishful boy, thinking. Was, yeah, boy, was I in for a surprise. <laughs> it was not. Because you see all these glossy fundraising campaigns and all that now with smiling, beautiful, airbrushed people and, you know, <laughs> talking about hope and recovery and all this. And it's like, yeah, no, but it still smells like piss in here. And <laughs> <laughs> there's still that guy screaming at the end of the hall. And there's still, you know, so so a lot of that institutional stuff, a lot of that treatment stuff, not to, you know, not to dissuade people from going to hospital if you need to. I'm not actually one of those people, believe it or not. Uh, I'm, I'm not anti-psychiatry. I'm not anti-hospital. Uh, I'm, I'm not even actually necessarily anti-involuntary treatment to a degree. I mean, I think that's way overused and it needs to be used very sparingly um, and in, in the right approach. But I will say I never recovered in hospital. A hospital kept me safe. Um, more or less sometimes, cause I was still able to hurt myself in hospital a few times when I was, when I was younger, it kept me alive. That's about it. The real recovery work for me happened out in the community, out in real life where all my problems were there waiting for me when I got discharged anyway. So that, that for me is, is, uh, it, it was a good reminder for me a year and a half ago or, or whatever it was. Uh, it was a good reminder for me to see that the system still needs me uh, and so many others uh, to do the kind of work that we've been doing, sharing our stories, um, reporting from the from the front lines uh, of mental health to tell people there's still work to go. We have miles to go before we sleep. Right. Absolutely. Well, it's great to hear that you essentially practiced what you preached and you you reach out for help when you know you need to and when it's right the right time. I think that's key and, and really part of developing that safety plan for yourself. And that's something it looks a little bit different for everybody, but essentially it's it's um, writing out explicitly because you will forget when you when you collapse into that tight space, you forget all kinds of stuff. You forget sometimes that you ever got better, even if you've gotten better 50 times before. Um, so write it down and have it right there. Put it in the box if you need to, your recovery kit. Remind yourself of how you know you're doing well. How do you know you're not doing well? And who are the people uh, that you and and the resources that you need to reach out to and implement uh, when you feel like you might be at risk, or or even if you're not at risk, even if you just need a cheer up, or you need a reminder to, you know, the steps. I should talk to my doctor. I should tell these these loved ones because they're people that I trust and feel safe with. And uh, you can even invite them into the process. Tell them, look, this is my safety plan. If I'm ever feeling really unwell, you know, some people use a green, yellow, red zone type thing or, or a numbering system. If I ever get into this place and I need to talk to you, this is what I want you to do for me. You know, don't tell, don't brush me off. Uh, don't suddenly call 911 on me. So all the SWAT team comes, right. <laughs> you know? just work with me in these specific ways. And, you know, if it gets to a point where I can't guarantee my own safety, um, and you're very concerned for me, then yes, I want you to call 911 on me. Uh, and, you know, if I'm absolutely refusing and, and you don't think that I'm going to stay alive, uh, that's going to look different for everybody granted. But, you know, even when I was working as a clinician, I always gave clients who were suicidal 
the options. I said, look, I don't uh, have a lot of confidence in your ability to keep yourself or your, your, your skills right now, I should say, to keep yourself safe. So here are our options. We can contract for safety right now, so we can work through this, and 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 I'm I'm here for you to do that until we get you to a good place, or uh, we can call 911 if that's what you want. We can have somebody come and get you, or there's a couple of other options in between. You can take yourself there. You can come with me. I'll drive you myself. We'll we'll get a cab. We'll take the bus. Whatever you want, um, keep you safe. We'll we'll call a crisis line together so you can talk to somebody else. There's all kinds of other options in between there. Uh, and usually people, almost always, 99% of the time, uh, people would, would do it themselves. People want to stay alive. They right. they want to. And and I, there's a lot of stuff that clouds that. There's a lot of stuff that um, makes us think we don't. But um, most of the time, uh, uh, compelling people into treatment and care is, is not necessary. It's not even all that effective. Um, but most of the time, it's not needed anyway. Right. So you got into the mental health system at a very young age of 12. And then how about the mental health field? You still, you were quite young, weren't you, when you actually started your work within the mental health field? Yeah, when I went off to college for undergrad, in which I studied psychology and and philosophy, among other things, I got involved for the first time with a mental health charity called the Canadian Mental Health Association. Eventually, I was actually elected their youngest ever president in their 100-year organizational history. Um, they're a sister organization of Mental Health America. They actually have a shared founder. So, so when I when I was involved from the advocacy front, you know, I, I had uh, already been developing a charity of my own uh, in which I was seeking to raise awareness of the connection between mental health and the arts, uh, music, dance, uh, graphic art, uh, things of that nature. Because I had seen how, how through my use of media, even then, you know, when I was discharged from hospital, I went to my high school principal when I was discharged from hospital that last time, went to my high school principal and told him that I wanted to talk about my experiences with, with depression and suicide. And uh, he told me, no, <laughs> he said, he said, you can't talk about suicide because it gives people the idea to go out and do it. And that's not supported by the research. And I knew that even then. That not it, at that's, all. It's not true. Um, so instead I went home and I wrote a letter to my local newspaper, a letter to the editor. Um, and in it, I think I likened the high school administration to communist Russia for stifling <laughs> free speech. <laughs> and there were television news cameras at the school the next morning asking why it wasn't okay to talk about mental health in school. And I think, <laughs> wow. yeah, when that happened and, and then, you know, I lived in a small town, everybody knew about it anyway. Um, but I had opened the door to say that I'm okay to talk about this stuff and, People wanted to talk about it. It turns out people want to talk about mental health and suicide. The problem is that people aren't asking. And if you ask, people will answer. They will talk back. They want to. Um, so when I saw that, and, and that's really what drove me to get involved in in advocacy and um, in college. I was, it's funny because I was a not a popular kid in high school. I was an introvert and and uh, uh, pretty quiet. But by the end of uh, undergraduate, I was elected the president of the students' union. I'm the youngest ever president of this this uh, mental health charity. Uh, went off to to grad school to study it more, and then started working as a clinician when I got back to uh, to Toronto. And you know, I'd, I'd been developing networks, I guess, ever really in some way or another ever since high school. Wow. So, how old were you when you were the youngest president of uh, Canadian Mental Health Association? Uh, Jay's, you're going to test me now. Um, 21, maybe 23. 21. Wow. Yeah. Something like that. That's incredible. And so you've taken, 
your work with the mental health advocacy work to even a new level and uh, you are the principal and CEO of your own organization, right? Strategic Mental Health Solutions. That's right. So, you know, I'd been working through a lot of different parts of the mental health system for years, working as a uh, counselor for children and or for um, transitional age youth, rather, uh, for mothers involved in, the, often mothers, I should say, involved in the children's aid system, uh, who also had co-occurring mental health disorders. I ran a workplace mental health program uh, for a while, and then eventually was uh, national director of strategic initiatives, again, for the Canadian Mental Health Association. Uh, when I got the book deal um, back in 2017, I left that job to continue doing my uh, writing and speaking full-time, as well as consulting. So, you know, the, that's that's the thing that I was most passionate about. So I thought, why not take this risk? I quit my job, my big fancy job in the executive office of a national charity, the oldest national mental health charity in Canada, uh, because I wanted to follow my dreams of writing this book and, and uh, speaking full-time and, and doing my advocacy efforts full-time. And, you know, it was a rocky transition at first, but then with through perseverance, through the networks that I had built over the years, through through grit and resilience, I think, uh, it's really become a very fulfilling uh, uh, a part of my my life. You know, as my family grows as well, I'm so fortunate to be able to say that I actually took that risk. I dove in uh, and I stuck it out. And, and now I'm able to do exactly what I love doing every single day. That's really, really cool. Tell us more about your book. Sure. So my um, uh, memoir was was uh, uh, picked up by Harper Collins. I said back in 2017, um, it was supposed to be out. I think this year sometime, but it takes a little longer uh, than, or it's been taking a little longer than we thought. But it's very close to finished, um, and so it will be out next year sometime. Uh, and it, it's it's my life, you know. So many people, millions of people, apparently have gotten to know me through two of my darkest stories of my life in this little 15 minute or whatever it is, uh, Ted talk. And I thought, you know, there's actually so much more to my story than just those two teeny tiny little, little snippets of my life. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to both understand better what got me to that point, um, where I was on the edge of a bridge ready to take my life, but then also what happened after and what I was able to do with it. So that's what I try to tackle in the book and, and in as readable a fashion as possible to give people a, a better understanding of the complex um, nature of mental health and mental illness. You know, I get so frustrated when I hear people say, well, your brain's just broken. You take these pills and you'll be fine. That's not how it works. It's, it's messy, at least for most people that I've encountered. It's messy. And it takes a lot to get into these places in our mind. It takes a lot to get out. So that's a big part of the podcast that I do now as well, so-called normal. Um, we have this idea, I think, so many of us, that there's this perfect version of normal out there. And if only I can get that, if only I can be like those select few normal people out there. Well, it turns out that doesn't really exist. It's all just a construct. And everybody's just figuring it out as they go, right? That That's the big secret that nobody's letting you in on, that it's messy for everybody. So why don't we, why don't we all enter into that? Into that? Yeah, absolutely. That was a perfect segue, actually, because I did want to ask you more about the so-called normal, your podcast, and I have to say some pretty darn well-known guests on there. I know Glenn Close was on there, Rosie O'Donnell, and yeah, it, it must fun. be your celebrityism that gets you connected with these other celebrities. I think it's actually the the content. It's it's the conversation that you know I was fortunate to to already be connected with with Rosie and Glenn, and and they uh, um, 
honored me uh, by inviting me down respectively to their to their homes uh, to record and uh, and to have these kinds of conversations about their mental health and and not only them but but so many other I think we just released our uh, 35th episode today and uh, still going strong so you know it, it's been such a privilege for me one of my biggest motivations in doing that was that I was sick of talking about myself so much I mean I do that for a living anyway but I wanted to get on the other side of the microphone instead of me being interviewed all the time I wanted to to interview others and that's what's been so um, rich and validating for me has been to take all of these years of experience, of, of diverse experience in so many parts of the mental health system, uh, and to share other people's stories. I think it's been a real privilege for me. That's really cool. I also wanted to ask you if all of your public speaking and your advocacy and your podcasting, do you find this work therapeutic? Oh, yes. I mean, I think that... that um, if I didn't have this, I don't like, I'm a one trick pony. I just, <laughs> I just, this is all I know how to do. I have no other transferable skills. Um, I'm not going to be joining an engineering firm at any point. Um, so I, I think that absolutely my advocacy was the key in the very earliest uh, points of my recovery of finding purpose of reeling, realizing that I had a unique individual place in the world that my experience mattered, that my struggle mattered. And that's what was so revolutionary for me was that all this hell that I've been through, um, I can use that for something. I can do good with it. I can take what I'm given and build something with it. So that's what I think, you know, my, my advocacy and, and my sharing of myself is, is selfish in some ways in that, in that it's for me too, that it, that it helps to keep me alive. Now, I will say sometimes, especially for people who are very early into the, the sharing of their own experience um, thing, even if they're trying to do it, especially if they're trying to do it professionally, it's always important to ask yourself uh, when you're in front of an audience, uh, who you're sharing your story for. Are you sharing it for them or for uh, yourself? And that's an important question because uh, it's a matter of safety in some respects, too. Uh, you're not just getting up on on a stage or in front of a camera or a microphone and dumping all your traumas on them. That there has to be a, a purpose to what you're doing, right, uh, in order to help them. Uh, you should never treat uh, this kind of work as, as therapy for yourself, even if it is therapeutic. Uh, if you need therapy, you should go to therapy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, don't, you don't rely on, a, on an audience to be your therapist. And, right, and any, right many, many points over the years. I've, I've had certainly more than one uh, therapist on at once uh, to try to explore my various uh, idiosyncrasies. <laughs> right, right. What, uh, so have you ever had a talk booked or a podcast interview or something when you have been in the midst of a relapse? And, and how do you handle that situation? Oh, yeah, sure. I did a great big stage event, I think, five days after I was released from hospital, just that like that last time, uh, two years ago or whatever it was there, a year and a half ago um, that I brought myself back in. So, you know, I, I these things happen and, and I think I've done it so much. Like I've done hundreds and hundreds of uh, media uh, spots and, and talks and uh, all kinds of stuff that in some ways you just kind of slide into it after a while. You just snap into it and and. Uh, and you access, I can anyway, access something in myself that is very authentic, uh, but then I can put away again after I'm done with it, which is, a, I think, an important skill to develop if you're going to do this kind of work. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, I, you'd have to ask an audience member if I've ever gone up there and 
uh, completely bombed because I was in a bad place. I don't know. Maybe I have, but I'm sure I probably have. But, you know, I think those get get fewer and far between. Right. Uh, I did uh, want to mention, I, I forgot to mention, along with those big names you had on your uh, podcast, I was also a guest. And I wanted yes. to thank you again for that opportunity. And it is, it's so unique and, and fun to be on the other side of the mic, right? And to have both experiences. It is, you know, and I was so honored to have you. And I'm so glad that we were able to meet in Dallas because uh, I wasn't previously aware of your work. Uh, but I'm so glad that I am now. Uh, and I'm so grateful that you came on my show as well. Yeah, that was incredible. You brought your uh, portable kit, a couple mics, uh, your digital recorder, and got an empty room that we sat in. That was fantastic. You, you got to know how to hustle when, <laughs> when, you're in the, when you're in this. Come prepared and hustle. That was awesome. Well, Mark, uh, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear, uh, you've been given tidbits of advice all the way through, but what piece of advice would you give a listener who might be in the midst of struggling right now? Tell somebody, reach out for help. You know, one of the most common things that I hear from people is that is, is the what if question. What if I tell my parents and they don't uh, care? What if I tell my therapist and they don't help? What if this or that? Well, that doesn't matter. You put that aside for a second. Tell them anyway. Then it's up to them. Ideally, we're doing a good enough job to train people to respond better. And a lot of the time, people don't respond in the way in the way that we catastrophize in our mind. Often they are very caring, or at least they try to be as, as far as they're able to. And sometimes we don't think they're going to be. But even if they're not, that's a good learning opportunity too. It's a good learning opportunity for you to articulate what you need and how you need it. Uh, and realizing, too, that not everybody is able to be there for you for a variety of reasons. That doesn't make that okay, but it's a part of reality. So we need to be able to to figure that out, to navigate that. So speak up about what you're what you're experiencing and seek out what you need. If you don't get it from that one therapist who is kind of a jerk to you, yes, yeah, some are. Okay, find a new one, right? If that medication isn't working for you and you've really tried it according to your doctor's recommendations, recommend some things to your doctor advocate for yourself right stand yeah, up for yourself absolutely. i think that's key so so speak up for what you need you know don't be don't, you don't got to be a jerk yourself about it either um but definitely be forceful in in what you need maintain an open mind because sometimes your mind will tell you especially if you're sick that that nothing is a good idea well try some things uh, and, and give them a good try uh, but then advocate for yourself as well i think that's key yeah. Awesome advice. Um, you know, sometimes I think particularly with men, there's this fallacy of you just got to be tough and I'll make it through it. I'll buck up. But really, the tough thing to do at times is to reach out and it is so critical and then you can get the help you need and you don't have to struggle on your own. Well, recovery is an upward spiral. And even like I say, even if people don't respond to you positively, you learn something from every encounter. So, you know, keep keep plugging away and realize that it actually does get better. I know that sounds kind of trite, but but it actually does. Uh, and, and the harder you work at it and the, and if you need to take a break, you need to take a rest and not work hard at it for a while. That's OK, too. Uh, but always get back to it. Always, your recovery is a practice. It's a project always be doing something, however tiny it is, even if it's just dragging yourself out of bed in the morning to get a shower, that might not seem like a big deal to anybody else. But if it's a big deal for you, then it's a big deal. And so recognize always, it, celebrate it. Celebrate it. Yes. Yeah. 
All right. Awesome advice. Well, Mark, thank you for all of the work you do. I really was so lucky to have met you at the conference. You do amazing work. Uh, really appreciate everything. You're an incredibly bright guy doing incredible work. And uh, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks so much, Al. It's been a pleasure. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. You too. All right. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.